Today we're going to be talking because of the emphasis upon the, those coming out to help us share the gospel. We're going to be talking about the idea of not ashamed. Okay? One of the most famous passages in all of uh, the Bible. Of course, it's found in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And the verse actually says, and, verse, and I put 17 here too, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for In it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now I put in green the emphasis being that of not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, but... I also like to sometimes see how the NLT puts it, uh, simply because sometimes it's a little more uh, readable in bringing out the nuances of what the Greek is trying to say into the English language. And I like what it says here, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ, because the word gospel, euangelion, is, is, a, is a word which means literally good news. So the NLT just says, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God, and I like this part, makes us right in His sight. Because that's the problem, isn't it, Jeff? People aren't right in God's sight because of our sin. So this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. I like how the NLT reads uh, in this way. I think it's very helpful as we talk about the issue of, this, of, of the power of the gospel and not being ashamed. But so I, wanna, I really want to major on the issue, though, of not being ashamed. By definition, it means uh, to be or become characterized by feelings of shame guilt, embarrassment, or remorse. Oftentimes, our reluctance to share the gospel has more to do with shame in ourselves. Now, this first part that's in uh, italics is there from the definition. The last part I kind of wrote in to help us understand. I've never been remorseful for sharing the gospel. I'm so sorry I shared the gospel with you. I am so sorry. I've never had that. Um, I've never been, I've never felt guilty for sharing the gospel, although I have had some guilt and regret about how I shared the gospel, okay, because I have been a bat before. Um, I've never felt ashamed of the gospel. I'm, 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 uh, I'm associated with it, but I have, I have had embarrassment. I have, I have had that personally. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking here, is, and I've got to address this up for you to help you understand. Paul, when he's just starting out here in the book of Romans, he's going to Rome. This is the center of the known world at that time. Everything is going on in Rome. And I have done some studies and reading on what life was like in Rome. And it was bad, very bad. Rome didn't have Roman citizens. Uh, they had a warrior mentality. Uh, 
They didn't think in terms of good or evil. They thought in terms of honor or dishonor. So when they thought in terms of honor and dishonor, they were quite drawn to power. It was heavily male-oriented to the sinful degree. Being a man in Rome at that time was all about you showing how strong you should be. And their favorite way of, of showing this or demonstrating this kind of superiority was through sexual abuse of all kinds. Um, women, Roman women, women of any kind, just a female lady person altogether, um, they were simply seen as a way to propagate the species. That's all. They had, they had no worth. They had no rights. And if you were a woman and you could not produce children, then you were pretty much, you had no purpose out with you. But that wasn't enough for these mental, <laughs> mental Roman ideas and mores. You understand the word mores comes from, which we get our word morals, that which we seem to be, that we see to be proper or improper. It was not uncommon for Roman citizens, uh, like men of the Roman realm, to have slaves. They had slaves, and they would sleep with female and male alike. They would do that to show dominance, superiority. And the Roman culture did not view it as evil or bad. You have to understand, even the women that were Roman didn't look upon that as being bad. They practiced pedophilia. And in many cases, as I read, these Roman men with the little boys that they abused saw that as probably their most uh, most prized love relationship in a warped way. Again, this is a culture that is twisted. If you ever watched the movie Gladiator, remember that when that came out? And in the Colosseum, they had those statues sticking up. That was the male anatomy. They, they literally celebrated that kind of imagery. There was a cult and a sexual exploitation for every taste. You've all heard of Pompeii, a retirement Roman uh, community that got wiped off the map. Okay. This is what they were into. They, as far as the afterlife is concerned, the emperors could become gods, and everyone less than that was sort of just hopeful that you would have peace of some kind. In fact, it really didn't register all that much. Religion that they had, praying to their ancestors, was to get them through for the moment. And then, of course, they had Elysium, which was a very strange view of, of an afterworld of peace. But it, it looked much like their permanent culture. So still filled with sexual immorality and all those things. So with all that being said, Rome's, Paul comes along and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. They saw Christians and Jews with their values and the, and the God-designed roles of men and women and the value of women and the value 
of the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife as evil, actually. They actually saw it as an evil. You were less than dirt if you were a Jew or a Christian to the Roman view. Because you had morals and values that didn't align with theirs. See, they called evil good and... Have I just described modern, the modern world? So, Paul goes to Rome and he sets out to preach and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. Before I get into why he said that a little more, I want to remind us that we who love the gospel have not come to grips with the fact that the gospel is by nature confrontational, isn't it? It's, it's, it's our shame. Our shame, then, if we have any, is about the personal discomfort that the gospel will bring to us if and when we share it. In other words, we get a little fearful. And I want to also say that the degree to which someone is insulted or offended by the gospel will be the degree to which they view morality and their own life. So if they're thick into sin to the point of, well, you can take it from there, and you come to them in the name of Jesus, and you even start with the moral law, thou shalt have no other gods before me, they may, they may be fine with that, okay. But if you get to the part where it says, um, uh, you know, you shouldn't, covet you might strike a chord because they may be all into that see and by the very fact that you're calling them on the carpet with the moral law they get angry because do we not get angry when we are held accountable thou shalt not commit adultery and if imagine going to a roman citizen and saying hey <laughs> Just, you know, the, God is against adultery. It's, it's an evil. You might get beat within inches of your life if not killed altogether or thrown to the wild beasts in the Colosseum. Because they thought you were being evil to say such a thing. Warp thinking. So the degree to the pushback you get is going to simply be necessitated by whom you're talking to and whatever they may be into themselves. I want to talk about uh, this very weird word. And I, 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 I've practiced this all week and I still can't remember it. But it's this word called uh, aletites. That's what it's called, letities. It's in the middle there. I'll get to it in a minute. But here's the thing. The negative form of Paul's assertion, I am not ashamed of the gospel, may be a literary convention called aletities. It's a dumb word. But this is a literary device, and, and it's really an ironic understatement in which an affirmative is expressed by the negative of its contrary. For example, you won't be sorry, meaning you'll be glad, right? So justifying our rendering, it is a straightforward positive statement. Paul is saying when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, I have great confidence in the gospel. This is a letitese. 
However, the foolishness of the word of the cross, as we're going to see in a minute, would make some degree of embarrassment about the gospel natural. Because can you imagine a, a, a community or a culture that prized victory at all costs and dominance showing them and telling them about a suffering Savior who died on the cross, which they deemed the lowest form of punishment for the lowest criminal, there's going to be, if you're a first century Christian, a bit of a pushback. They're going to think you're outside your mind. Why should they value the invaluable? So, for Paul then, and bringing up 1 Corinthians 1.18, it would make some degree of embarrassment about the gospel natural, particularly in the capital, the capital of the Gentile world. But perhaps the most important reason for Paul's negative wording is his realization that many Romans view his gospel with, a, with, some, this commentator, with some degree of suspicion. Some degree of suspicion. Why? Because it's so countercultural to their warped culture. Today, that's today. I don't want to get into this. I'm just going to say, just because this is how warped things are, okay? An interview I heard about recently was asking a college student talking about a man being a woman if he was really a woman. And this college student replied, she said, yes, he is. I trust the science. You ever had a chicken look at you? We have chickens. Sometimes they'll just, you know. And that's that's because, so you have in our day a, a, we have a, there's a person swimming as a dude on the women's, and he's winning everything. Well, so we have already this counterculture. When we go to present Christ to them, don't be surprised if you don't get, shoved back on jesus said if if any man desires to come after me what does he have to do deny himself well to the roman mindset are you kidding deny yourself this is about you taking the blunt end of your sword and pounding them in the ground and dominating why would you deny yourself so you have to start with with God. So let's, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we seek to share Christ with a person, like I just said, we're going to offend them because we're going to be, the gospel is going to be exposing their rebellion. Now look, you can even talk to people who have been churched all their life. I call it churchianity. It's a thing. It's really real. It's, dib- it's, it's different from biblical Christianity. Churchianity deals on, it, it, it specializes on externals, right? Biblical Christianity focuses on internals. Churchianity focuses on means and methods that are from the outside. Biblical Christianity focuses on God. Churchianity focuses on self. How I feel if I'm having my needs met. Biblical Christianity says you must repent. Churchianity says God loves everybody and loves you and accepts you the way you are. There's a vast difference even in what we would call Christendom in the nation. So when we share the gospel with people, 
you're going to have some bit of confrontation. And it isn't going to always be from the freaky, weird-looking person out on the street. It could look like the, well, the, the, the nice little senior adult lady that's playing bingo or something. And you sit down, and you say, oh, hi, Mrs. Jones. Oh, I'm just so good, sweetie. Thank you for coming by to see me. Mrs. Jones, do you know Jesus? No. Well, can I tell, share the gospel with you? The Bible says that unless we repent of our sins, we will perish and be separated from God for all eternity. But God's in his own son that we wouldn't have to get out of my house. I mean, that might just happen because you think, well, Miss Jones, <laughs> she's a monster because that's what the gospel invokes. In Acts chapter 24, verse 24 and 25, after some days, as Paul is on trial here, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, now notice this, this list. This is the list. Righteousness, what is it? Self-control. In Roman culture, are you kidding me? Self-control? And the judgment to come, we don't deal with judgment stuff. Heaven is how I define it. Felix was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because the power of the gospel invokes the fear of God. And he answered, and he says to Paul, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And he never did call for him again. I like what Walter Shantry wrote uh, in the book, uh, The Gospel. He writes, evangelists today are making the dreadful miscalculation that sinners who know God, that sinners Okay, I'm going to start with evangelists today are making the dreadful miscalculation that sinners know who God is. We have to come to grips with the fact that even in America, there are large swaths of especially younger generations that don't know who God is. We are that godless. The sad truth is that our age knows less than the Jews of our Lord's day about God. Nevertheless, evangelicals plunge right into five things God wants you to know. They all center upon the man's eternal fortunes and utterly ignore the question, Who is God? The sinners thus treated never realize the gravity of their plight. They don't know who they have offended. And this is tragic, which is why it's very important that we understand what the moral law of God was given for us to do. It shows us that we are guilty because nobody can, no one is going to deny the fact that they lie, that they cheat, and that they steal, and that they have other gods. And when you throw up the Ten Commandments in front of them and you say, and God says that you are guilty breaking His law. Suddenly, what are they? They're either guilty or really philosophical. Okay? Notice the other part. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So as, as Paul is saying, I am confident, even in a place like Rome, with all of this stuff, that God is powerful enough to reach even them. Now, was it true? Oh, it was true. It was true because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So Robert H. Mount writes, the gospel is not simply a display of power, 
but the effective operation of God's power leading to salvation. It has purpose and it has direction. The salvation Paul spoke of is more than forgiveness of sin. It includes the full scope of deliverance from the results of Adam's sin. Now you'll notice that part, right? Adam's sin. How depraved are we? Totally depraved. We talked about children in Travis's Sunday school class and we envisioned what we would consider to be one of the most innocent of creatures in our day, which is a baby. And if that baby weighed 200 pounds, we all agreed. He got mad. He gonna kill you. If he could, he would kill you dead because the kid, it's all about them, right? They're very good at it. It's just because they're cute, they live. And it's because of the cuteness when they were younger, when they're teenagers, you don't destroy them altogether, okay? But if, if our culture doesn't have an adequate view of who God is as the creator and maker of all things, when we present a fluffy Jesus, you're going to get a fluffy response. You know what? Let me tell you something. If you go up to somebody who doesn't know Jesus and you say, hey, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's great. So do I. No. Hey, did you know that God made a way for us to know him because we're so guilty and so sinful? The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you engage in this conversation. What are you trying to do? You're trying to get them where they realize they are lost. The good news isn't good news until it's bad news first. And they got to understand that. That what Adam did spread to them. And then you can give the good news. And then it's like, save me from this firestorm. Flee to Jesus and be saved. It involves the whole of, of, of the gospel involves justification, being set right with God. Being sanctified or growing in holiness. I want to stop right here and just encourage you for a second. Look, the chief way you can know that you've truly been born again is if you slide off into sin, just like sometimes you slide off in the ditch in your truck, God's going to pull you out again. You can't help it. You just keep bouncing back. Because he will never let you go. Praise God for that. Now, you may be muddy, but you're going to get cleaned up. Glorification, the ultimate transformation into the likeness of Christ. The gospel serves the eternal purposes of God who before the creation of the world chose to create for himself a people who would respond to his love. Becoming a child of God requires deliverance, from what we are as children of Adam. It is not something we can do for ourselves. It requires the power of God himself working through the gospel. Case in point, just real quick, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to talk about this briefly. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Now, now this is... <laughs> This is a large, there are 220 words in one sentence here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice, 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Do you know where you were before this actually became effectual in you? Well, it's where you were when God Almighty came down and slammed right smack dab in the middle of your life. That's where you were. But he's so faithful because he said before the foundation of the world, he had determined to do just that. Every one of your testimonies I've heard are all the same. You were going along and going along and going along until suddenly he came along and he changed your life and you weren't even looking. He did it. So, to the praise of his glory, by his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to, notice this part, his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him, it says, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of of his glory and i'm reminded after reading that text of acts chapter 13 and verse 48 now when the gentiles heard this they were glad and glorified the word of the lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed let me tell you why we should not be ashamed or as in paul's letities way of saying i am confident in the gospel of why we should be confident in handing out things like this and trying to knock on strangers' doors. Let me tell you why I'm confident that when people have a track in their hand or get a, a, a movie, do people still have DVD players? If they get these, let me tell you why I'm confident that this is something that God has told us to do because He gave us the Great Commission and He told us to spread the Word. And people say, this doesn't work anymore. Well, I'll tell you one thing. You take that up against the sovereign plan of God and tell me different. You remember Sean Kills was here preaching about two years ago or so. And he, had, he, he was part of a ministry called the Power Team. And apparently the head of that Power Team, when it started, was a, was a cocaine snorter guy. And he told the story of having a track, a gospel track. And he rolled it up to snort his dope. But just for whatever reason known to God, he unrolled it and he read it, was soundly converted, started a ministry called the Power Team. The rest is history. Was it worth it? I don't know who gave him a track. God knows. Here's why I think those passages in Ephesians is so good. The doctrine of election propels us forward with knowing God can save anybody. Anytime He chooses, He wants to use us. 
So if we're faithful to go and be faithful to share the gospel, you can't say that'll never work because God has determined it will regardless of what you and I think and regardless of who they are and how long they've been there. How else can you explain the amount of Muslims coming to Christ right now? How else can you explain the litany of testimonies of people who have came to Christ? Hudson Taylor, everyone know who he is, right? Read a track and was soundly converted. Here's what we're going to do now. This was just the opening salvo for what's to come next week. We need to begin to pray for God to make us bold and to not being ashamed of the gospel. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I just shared the gospel. Jesus died to save sinners. If you do not come to Him and flee to Him and repent of your sin and be cleansed from your sin, you will perish. But He stands there saying, Come. And you will come. So God is dealing with you. You will come. Okay? And I have that confidence because I believe in the power of the gospel to save. As a church, we need to organize the prayer wheels. The furnace needs to be stoked. Terry's talked about that. There's a sign-up sheet out, out yonder in there. But right now we're going to go into a time of corporate prayer together. This is the way we're going to close the service today. This is Corporate Prayer Sunday. We pray together. We've, we've, we've worshipped, we've preached, and now it's time to pray. We pray and we intercede, don't we? And we ask God to give us wisdom when we don't have any. And we ask God to do the impossible in reaching our lost community because we can't affect them. And we ask God to show us other areas where we need to lift up and talk to Him about as a body corporately. So here's how this works. I'm going to ask, uh, I always go to the left. Maybe I'll go to the, I'm going to, I'm going to, Mike is in the right corner over there, okay? I'm going to ask Mike to open this up. And I'm going to ask Mike, just pray what's on your heart. Not speeches, not length, but quality. And then as soon as he's finished, someone else stand up and pray, okay? And, so, and in, in sequence like that. Let there be no air in the conversation with God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as a congregation and ask God to do what only he can do.